With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel coming up at the bottom of the hour. But to start this week's edition, it is this morning's front burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Jonathan Mopitzi, in for Jamie Poisson. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to give you a heads up. We're going to talk about the rapper DaBaby and some comments he made that caused a lot of anger in the LGBTQ community. Some listeners might find them distressing. A couple of weeks ago, DeBaby stopped in the middle of his show at Rolling Loud in Miami to go on a rant. You didn't show up today with HIV, AIDS, any of them deadly sexual transmitted diseases that'll make you die in two, three weeks, put a cell phone like that. They were hateful and homophobic comments about HIV. And he went on, telling the audience to, quote, raise their lit up cell phones if they weren't gay men having sex in parking lots. The follow was quick. DeBaby was dropped from a bunch of big events, business deals, and some radio stations won't even play his music anymore. When the outrage got louder, the rapper posted a formal apology on social media. But this week, he deleted that apology from Instagram. These developments got a lot of people in the hip-hop industry talking. When he said it, my husband showed it to me. And I was like, you know, because I never... I thought another was like a fan of the baby as far as like a rapper. I thought he was cute or whatever, but you know, like the way he talk about girls and women and he was very disrespectful, but I never expected that. <laughs> like I never expected a rapper to get on stage and say, if you ain't got HIV and you ain't going to die in two weeks, put your phone up. Because it was like, okay, he just proved that this is really how he feel. And we're kind of used to that. That's Bugs Gutta, a.k.a. William Bailey. He's a rapper based in New York. Like a lot of other queer hip-hop artists, he's come across people like DaBaby his entire career. I've met so many straight men who felt this way, like the way DaBaby feel and other people about gay people. And then they have a chance to be around them and they will tend to be okay around you but they never fully accept you and they just tolerate us and I think it's we as a community especially this new generation no we're not trying to be tolerated you'll hear more from William Bailey in a bit but first I'm talking to Canadian rapper Roly Pemberton aka Cadence Weapon about DeBaby's comments and how they've set off a conversation about homophobia and toxic masculinity in hip-hop. Hey, Roly, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's start with what DeBaby said. What did you think when you heard his rant? Well, when I first heard it, my first thought was, you know, this is really ignorant. It made me a little embarrassed to just be in the same profession. Because I feel like spreading so much false information to this huge audience of young, impressionable people. Not only that, but it's also something like HIV and AIDS that really affects the black community a lot disproportionately. And further demonizing people who are, I think, the most vulnerable people in society. You know, it's just a really shameful moment. And he, and he said this at like the, the largest hip hop uh, festival in front of a massive audience, you know, we're talking like tens of thousands of people. How significant do you think that was? 
Well, I think that was really significant. I think maybe that might be why the backlash is so extreme because not only it was like tens of thousands of people in person, but you know, this festival was streamed online. It's the biggest thing in hip hop. Like that's like our Woodstock nowadays. So he took an opportunity to say these comments at the, the biggest possible audience he could. So there, there was obviously a lot of outrage, but there, there were also artists who came to DeBaby's defense. Some of his fans said, oh, this is just another example of cancel culture. Tell me about the range of reactions we've heard. Yeah, you know, I, I, I watch a lot of the Instagram hip hop pages, like academics and stuff, and I look at the comments on there, and you're seeing a lot of people talking about cancel culture and talking about how you know, he shouldn't, he shouldn't apologize. He needs to stick by his guns and everything. And there, there's like a lot of support for what he's saying, you know, he's that, the, that he's entitled to his opinion, things like that. And to me, watching it, I feel like suddenly being a hip hop fan, like it's like I'm a part of like some kind of, right wing like reddit page or something like it doesn't feel like the the politics of, of hip hop as i know them does it does it break down by a generation of hip hop artists at all i would say like when it comes to artists you know the older artists for sure these are the people who are uh, defending the baby you know people like ti who was in the news for you know talking about his daughter in a really creepy way you know and like the LAPD investigating rapper T.I., two women, one in Los Angeles and one in Las Vegas, accusing T.I. and his wife, Tiny, of drugging and sexually assaulting them more than a decade ago. Now, the LAPD confirmed to NBC News that they are investigating T.I., but would not say if it was over those particular allegations. The LAPD says... Boosie, who is a person who's just always saying really ignorant, like, thoughtless comments. He said how y'all trying to force this, this gay stuff on the world. Bro. It's sad, how y'all trying to ban artists? Y'all sad, bro. It's sad, bro. But I also think there's like a young segment of, I would say, white suburban rap fans who, you know, they feel like this kind of behavior is like, oh, he's like an outlaw. Oh, he, he's like Trump. He just says whatever he wants. I, I feel like myself and a lot of hip hop fans don't want to be a part of either side. Okay, I want... I want you to hear a bit more from William Bailey. He's the queer hip-hop artist we heard from before. He says that he's dealt with homophobia since, basically since the start of his career. Well, when I first, in, first, first started was like in the early parts of the 2000s. Back then, the people who I was dealing with wanted me to not be openly gay. They basically wanted me to hide that. So that was probably the reason why, I would say probably that was the reason why I never pursued music after that, because I felt like I couldn't. I felt like there was no place. Now, Bailey did eventually pursue music again, but he also told us that being a gay man in the hip-hop industry was really difficult. Some years ago, yeah, like, it was times where I, because, like, I don't, like, to the eye, to the normal, I don't come across as gay, you know, so... I met people and, you know, they heard me rap and want to, I got, I actually have songs with people that can't come out because they found out I was gay. It's like a person not knowing you gay and give you all the props and want to work with you. But once they find out, it's like, it's been times where people was like, no, I'm good. I don't want to be associated with that. Roly, what's it like to hear that from a fellow artist? That's definitely real. I mean, hip hop has had a lot of misogyny, a lot of homophobia from the very beginning. 
first thing I think of is, you know, even on like Grandmaster Flash, The Message, you know, there's gay slur in that song. Dropping out of high school, now you're unemployed, all non-void, walking around like your pretty boy Floyd, turn stick up kid, but look what you done did, got sent up for an eight-year bid, now your manhood is took and you're a make tag, spend the next two years as a old Wu-Tang songs, you know, like Brand Nubian, like all this stuff that we grow up on and you still hear these things. I, I think that's one of the most important things about having more diversity in hip-hop music because I feel like the audience doesn't want to hear this stuff. I feel bad recommending some of these like bigger rappers who say things that are hurtful to large seg segments of society. And this is a, a real like turning point moment for hip-hop. In in what sense is it is it a turning point? Where where is it coming from, and where do you think it's going? Well, I feel like there's been a lot of hip hop fans who've had this like simmering feeling of embarrassment about some of the things that rappers have said over the years, what they've rapped about over the years, and and I feel like you know you're seeing a lot more diversity with artists like Lil Nas X, who I would say arguably is the biggest rapper, and he's doing it just by being himself and creating a lane where there wasn't one before, you know, and people are really gravitating to that. It feels like there is a bit of a, a, a power shift happening within hip hop. That is part one of this morning's front burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS FM. We'll have part two in a moment. You're listening to After Nine. There's a river of birds in migration, a nation of women with wings. Wings, a series of news and current affairs programs by and about women around the world. Produced and distributed by the Women's International News Gathering Service. Listen for Wings Wednesday nights at 8.30 here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Staying hydrated during hot weather is important, especially during extreme heat. The healthiest way to stay hydrated is by making water your drink of choice. While other beverages can be loaded with calories, sodium, sugars, or saturated fats, straight water is the natural alternative to quench your thirst and rehydrate. Looking for a little flavor? Add a mix of fruit and herbs. More information on hydrating with healthy drink options is available through the Canada Food Guide at Canada.ca. Efficient financial systems contribute to the development and maintenance of any organizational infrastructure. Vantage Point's not-for-profit financial systems checklist can reveal opportunities to further strengthen your organization's fiduciary management. The checklist can be found by searching for financial system on the downloadable resources link under media at thevantagepoint.ca. While there, check out other valuable organizational tools. Vantage Point's financial system checklist, downloadable online at thevantagepoint.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today, winds in the south at 20 this afternoon. A high of 31 with a high UV index. Clear tonight, south winds becoming light this evening and a low of 14. For Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud. Winds from the southwest at 20 in the afternoon. A high of 26 with a high UV index. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
As promised, here is part two of this morning's front burner from CBC News. All right, really. Let me let me ask you, like, straight on. How how prevalent in, is homophobia in hip hop in your experience? Uh, in my experience, I mean, when I was first starting out, just as an underground rapper in Edmonton, like. It was a very male, very heteronormative environment. It was very sexist. And yeah, you'd hear, you know, in battle rap, that's something that was standard. That was one of the reasons why I got out of battling, really, was it's about, you know, saying the other person's gay or whatever, or like, you know, saying they're effeminate. That was never anything I wanted to do. It did feel a little bit like it was a part of hip hop. It's a shame, but I think it goes from even my local scene all the way to like the biggest rappers back in the 80s and 90s. It was commonplace. Like, so why is it a part of hip hop? And like hip hop's obviously not monolithic, but why, why is there that presence in hip hop, do you think? I mean, there's a few reasons. I mean, hip hop is really reflective of the culture that it's in. And I feel like if you were to go look at a movie from the 80s, you might think that the cultural touchstones and the way that they spoke would be totally out of step with today, right? And it's the same with rap. Like, I feel like you don't hear that kind of stuff lyrically in rap as often today than you would have in the late 80s, early 90s. But I think one of the reasons for that would be, you know, there's a connection to, like, the kind of pimp culture that a lot of rappers are influenced by. There's a lot of, like, prison culture where, you know, being gay is really frowned upon. And then there's also like the kind of Catholic upbringings that rappers have where it's totally frowned upon. Bailey also talked about how this has to do with a, a fear of an agenda to emasculate black men. Within hip hop, it's like, okay, well, we can't allow y'all to represent us because if you represent us as a, a rapper and you gay, then that makes us all gay. That makes us all look soft. Like they have this crazy idea that it's an agenda to strip the black man of his masculinity and I guess make everybody gay. Does that, does that resonate with you? I definitely have heard some things like that. Like one of the things I think of is like when Dave Chappelle talked about the whole phenomenon of black comedians, black actors um, being forced to, you know, put on drag, you know, and this being a way of like emasculating them in, in, in the mainstream. They got me. I mean, I'm a conspiracy theorist to a degree. Like when I, I connect dots that maybe shouldn't be connected, I don't know. But certain dots, like when I see that they put every black man in the movies in a dress at some point in their career, I'll be connecting that dot. Like, why all these brothers got to wear a dress? This happened to me. Um, but yeah, I I feel like that's more in rap. It's more of like a conspiracy way of thinking. And I feel like okay, conspiracies have been deeply connected to hip hop from the very beginning. Like so much of Wu Tang is just like all conspiratorial raps. And I feel like this is a lot of people in the comments of like Reddit pages, the comments of Instagram being like, yeah, you know, they're platforming this gay rapper and like there's this agenda to like turn our children gay or something. And to me, it reminds me of like looking at like Infowars with Alex Jones or something like, you know, I, it makes me really embarrassed to be a rap fan because it's like, this is not why I got into rap. I got into rap because I believe in creativity of language. I believe in like the progressiveness of like freaking beats and sampling tracks and doing things differently and having different perspectives than are in the mainstream. And to see what I consider this very conservative way of thinking, like seeping into hip hop more and more, uh, it's really embarrassing to me. 
So we just heard from William Bailey about the homophobia he's lived through in, in this industry and some of the reasons why it's so, so prevalent. But at the same time, I can't help but think about the rise in queer representation that we're seeing now in hip-hop uh, with somebody like Lil Nas X, who's a huge star. What does his success tell you? Well, it tells you that there's definitely an audience that's hungry for something different. There's there's a there's a large segment of hip hop fans who feel like they haven't been represented over the years, and I think representation matters in music. This is somebody doing something not only musically different, because I feel like it's this really cool combination of pop and hip hop sensibility, uh, and his personality is so unique, and he's a child of the internet. But I also feel like this is a part of something that has been building over time, whether it's with someone like Frank Ocean or Tyler Creator. Hey, uh, God of shit, God of shit, God of shit, God of shit for the Gaudian. That is why I was hiding. That was real love I was in. Ain't no reason to pretend. God of shit, God of shit, God of shit, God of shit for the God songs and feelings that I was Gaudian. Heavy on my mind. All my friends' mouths. They couldn't read the signs. I didn't want to talk. Just people being more open about their sexuality and having different perspectives. And I feel like Lil Nas X really blew the doors open for this way of thinking. Yeah, and 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 William Bailey told us that uh, Lil Nas X has opened opened doors for artists like him to, to to be more visible and 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 to kind of you know have have careers in the industry. I call him my niece. <laughs> I'd be like, get it, niece. Every time I see him up there dancing and stuff, I appreciate it so much because I know I remember growing up and I couldn't, I didn't see that on TV at all. So for young, black, gay little boys to be able to see it and say, yo, I want to be there. I want to do that. I think that's amazing. He he is allowing us to be more visible. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's there's there's one thing about rap. You know, it's like men lie, women lie, numbers don't. Lil Nas X is one of the biggest artists. You can see the real engagement with this music. It's really touching people in a different way. It's people who have been hungry and thirsty for rap that's about something else or rap that's coming from a different perspective and they're speaking with their dollars and they're speaking with their streams in life we hide the parts of ourselves we don't want the world to see we lock them away we tell them no we banish them but here we don't welcome to montero so speaking of streams, uh, Montero, you know, the, the track that Lil Nas released earlier, earlier this year, you know, it was hugely praised by the LGBTQ community for, for being so unapologetic. But he, but he also became the target of some pretty ugly homophobic attacks because some people took offense with the imagery he used in the video, which involved Satan and a laugh. Wasn't that the little boy from Old Time Road? He was just gonna get on this little horse. That's that little boy. What He's all grown up. For these musical acts seeking attention. What's most outrageous is the timing of this. It was intentionally dropped on the eve of Holy Week. Mm. Try this with any other religious group than Christians during their holy yeah. days. And Naz might find himself sliding down that pole for real. This is desperate and yeah. really pathetic. Now, what stands out about the backlash to Montero? 
Well, I think a lot of the backlash is definitely a lot of these older rappers or establishment rappers being afraid. But I feel like a lot of it goes back to that kind of like old school conservative Christian upbringing that some of these rappers have. Back in the day with hip hop is like there were certain rules that you had to abide by. There were certain things that, oh, yeah, like it's not cool to be satanic. I feel like that's one of the things that makes Lil Nas X like one of the most important artists today. It's like a really radical shift in what is allowed to be rap. So he's like he's he's bringing new content to like not only the the style of hip hop but also just like the what you, what you can rap about what you can what you include in your lyrics. Exactly, exactly. Like there's so much about what he does that's really subversive, and I, I feel like anyone who complains about what he's doing, they really out themselves as a homophobe. You know, because it's like if he wasn't gay and he was doing the same thing, they'd be right behind him. Really, what what needs to happen now in the industry for real progress in dealing with homophobic and misogynistic attitudes? Like, what do you think artists and producers and record labels need to start doing? Well, I think you're seeing it uh, with what happened to the baby. Like, we need to divest from artists who have these totally wrong viewpoints. They need to be, in my opinion, excommunicated from the industry. You know, and they don't need to be platformed. Like the baby was one of the biggest artists in the world before he did this. I think it's, it's, it really shows how much our culture has shifted that, you know, festivals are dropping them because they want to be more in tune with a certain set of values that more fans have nowadays. I, I really think the most important thing is just to keep going. Like Lil Nas X, that's one artist. I think we need more gay artists in hip hop. I think we need, more trans artists, more women artists, people of all different diverse backgrounds because that's what's going to keep rap alive. We need different perspectives and we need different ideas. Roly Pemberton, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Some news before we let you go. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is expected to visit Rideau Hall on Sunday to ask the parliament be dissolved, triggering an election. This is according to sources with knowledge of the plans who talked to CBC News on the condition that they not be named. The campaign is expected to run for 36 days, which means voting day would be Monday, September 20th. That's all for this week. Front Burner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show was produced this week by Katie Toth, Ali Janes, Imogen Burchard, and Simi Bassi. Our sound design was by Derek Vanderwijk and Mackenzie Cameron. Our music is by Joseph Shabison of Boombox Sound. The executive producer of Front Burner this week is Elaine Chow. I'm Jonathan Mopzi. Thanks for listening to Front Burner. Elamine Abdel Mahmoud will be with you on Monday. That is this morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You can also catch Front Burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stay tuned when After 9 returns here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. We will have the Friday panel with your host this morning, Rez Krebs. Watson Weekend returns to Hubble Homestead August 27th to 29th. Suitable for all ages, Watson Weekend will feature new puzzles and brain teasers for your group to work on at your own pace. Really put your brain to the test with an exit room style game on Sherlock Saturday. 
Pre-registration for the Sherlock Saturday is available through this Sunday for just $10 at hubblehomestead.ca. Other Watson weekend events are free with your admission donation. August 27th, 29th at Hubble Homestead, 40 kilometers north of Highway 97 on Mitchell Road. Prince George City Council meetings are now open again to members of the public. Meetings, however, are not yet back to normal as steps remain in place to ensure physical distancing to protect the health and safety of council, staff, and the public in adherence with the city's COVID-19 safety plan and provincial health orders. The city anticipates a phased resumption of pre-pandemic processes and protocols related to public meetings to take place in step with the BC Restart Plan. Full details are available through the Mayor and Council link under City Hall at PrinceGeorge.ca. Vancouver Kelowna-based artist Keith Langergrabber's exhibition, The Wilderness of Mirrors, is on now at Two Rivers Gallery. The Wilderness of Mirrors explores a fictional narrative utilizing video, sculpture, and drawing set around Monument 83, a wildfire lookout point on the Canada-U.S. border. Two Rivers Gallery is open Tuesday through Saturday from 10 to 5 with admission by donation. The Wilderness of Mirrors by Keith Langergrabber through October 3rd at Two Rivers Gallery. The Canadian Red Cross is encouraging people under evacuation order due to wildfires in BC to register with Red Cross by calling 1-800-863-6582 between 9 and 5. Registration ensures people can be contacted while away from home and can be reached with further information on Red Cross services and assistance as it becomes available. If you wish to help people impacted by BC wildfires, contribute to the British Columbia Fires Appeal online at redcross.ca. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Rez Krebs sitting in for Nathan Gita. And today we've got our Friday panel. As usual, we've got Eric Allen. Hi, Eric. Art Pitke. Herb Martin. And Peter Ewart. Welcome, guys. Hello. Unfortunately, we're missing uh, Trudy this morning, but uh, hopefully she'll be back next week. So yeah, this morning I had a couple of uh, couple of things I was thinking about. We could talk about the you know there's this new uh, vaccine passport that's likely to be implemented here in Canada. Not sure if this is a uh, an election uh, kind of issue for Trudeau or if this is something else. Um, that he wants to put in place for just for travel, or we'll be seeing it um, in terms of more vaccine mandates, or even passes for uh, participating in public uh, in the public. Uh, you know, there's there are all these kind of um, potential implications for the uh, you know the, the idea that we have to have some kind of paper or pass in order to go out in public. I mean, we've been seeing those yellow cards that were originally introduced for yellow fever for international travel. You know, we've seen that for decades. I don't think that there are, there is much, um, controversy around, around having proof of vaccination in order to travel internationally. But I'm interested in what you guys think about, you know, both mandates as in, uh, what has just been, uh, implemented here in BC for people working in assisted living and long-term care. That, you know, the requirement that they, uh, are vaccinated in order to continue working in those, uh, places. And also the idea of passes, what we've seen in, uh, New York, for instance, with their Excelsior Pass, that I believe is still actually a voluntary thing that, uh, businesses can or, or can't use to, to ask people to, uh, if they're gonna 
come into a public place like a restaurant or a musical um, or uh, the green pass that was used in Israel. Um, so do we do we think let's let's first of all like do we think that implementing a pass system might be a way to increase vaccination? This sounds like what they might be doing in Manitoba. I'll start with Eric. What do you think about that? Well, I, you know, uh, to me it sounds like a monstrosity of an idea implemented by government people who, as a general rule, don't know what they're doing. Um, like, why do we need it? Like, we don't even know uh, whether or not, if you've had the both vaccinations, whether or not you can get COVID again or whether you can have it and pass it on to somebody else. We, we actually do know that you can get COVID if you've been double vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I was good. I wasn't going to be too specific on that. So you can get it. So you, so I've got my two shots, and, and uh, then I get COVID or something, but I can go any place I want and pass it on, and nobody's going to pay any attention to me because I've had two shots. But the other guy who doesn't have it, never had it, and might never get it, can't go in the same restaurant as I can because somehow or other he might infect somebody when I'm already doing it. See, so, so logically it doesn't make sense until they have more information. I think it's, it's just the usual uh, government, corporate sort of uh, way of getting you, people to do the work that maybe they should be doing. It's like bagging your own groceries at a grocery store, checking out your own deal and, and all of that. They want you to do all the work and everything so they continue to make money. Okay, interesting take. Um, Art, I mean, are we are we balancing individual liberty with uh, public obligation by requiring by requiring a vaccine, double vaccination, in order to participate in the public realm? Uh, I, I think we're violating uh, people's rights by doing that. Uh, I, I agree with Eric. You know, if if the vaccine is so perfect, then maybe, but it's not. And in fact, uh, having vaccine, uh, some people are saying that might even promote the emergence of uh, variants as uh, only the resistant uh, mutations survive and then can affect everybody. Uh, in um, Israel, at least with their passports, they're, uh, they're uh, uh, including uh, people who have recovered, like myself, who've had the COVID and recovered, which makes a lot of sense. I think that's a better uh, vaccination than the uh, needle. Uh, in in Britain, when the Delta was uh, at its peak, 47% of new infections had at least one vaccination. Many of them had two. Um, it, I, it's not really all that effective, but the fact is people have pandemic fatigue. They want to return to normal, so they'll grasp at any straw in hopes it will. Uh, end the pandemic, and you know they'll they'll demand that government do something, and uh, so you might get a fair lot of approval for it. But uh, in Europe, in places where they have tried it, I believe France, Germany, Italy, they've had uh, a lot of resistance. They've had demonstrations and riots against it. So I don't know. It, it's uh, it's not going to be a real easy thing to do. Thanks, Art. Herb, yeah, so this is uh, kind of an interesting way to balance things. I did see a picture of uh, I did see a picture of a police officer checking people's vaccination records at a cafe in Paris. That was a little frightening to me. What do you think about that, Herb? 
Yeah, we were sort of getting to a brave new world here. But um, look, the, the basic fact is that um, over 90% of the people who are being hospitalized now with COVID have not been vaccinated twice. So the vaccine works. And um, people are not using it despite the huge amounts of money that countries paid to uh, secure these vaccines. Um, you know, maybe, um, you know, a, a vaccine passport might be... Um, might be the answer. All the devil's in the details always. But another another approach might be that um, if you you know suffer from um, uh, COVID and you go to the hospital and you haven't had your two vaccinations, that you're liable for um, all the costs um, that uh, that occur. I mean, socialized medicine um, maybe only to a point. Uh, if people are really you know willing to go out there and take the chance, then they should be willing to pay. Um, that might uh, up the um, percentage a bit. So what do you say, and then, Herb, that uh, if we don't take it, uh, we should pick up the uh, cost? Yeah, so so then the if you do take it, are you going to pay for the cost? My, I'm not going to pay for you to take it and then get charged because I don't take it. Uh, yeah, basically, uh, look, I mean, if, if, if over 90% of the people who are, who are getting vaccinated twice uh, are, are, um, are not winding up in the hospital, and there's only a small minority, then uh, you know society can can take that uh, can take that hit. But uh, to spend uh, millions and millions of dollars uh, you know, securing the vaccines, and then turning around and then paying for people who are not vaccinated to go to the hospital again, um, when does it stop? You know, let's uh, let's be realistic here. Thanks, Herb, and, and thanks uh, for the. I love the conversation. Let's let's get more of that. I just want to make sure Peter's got an opportunity to weigh in here. Um, you know, Herb's got an interesting idea there. Okay, if you're not vaccinated and you you know you decided not to participate in the public health program, maybe you end up being being uh, financially uh, accountable for COVID. I mean, that opens up another can of worms. If you're a smoker, maybe you end up being financially liable if, if you have. Uh, you know, lung cancer. But Peter, uh, what do you think about the idea of a vaccine pass in order to kind of normalize things again, get people back into the public and being able to, you know, uh, travel freely so long as they've been vaccinated? Uh, yeah, I, I really question whether uh, vaccine passports are necessary. We already have, you know, extensive uh, vaccine program. You know, we have mask uh, policies. We have treatments of various kinds. If you get the COVID, we have lockdowns. So I'm thinking that vaccine passports, you know, I think it's a, you're going into overkill there. You know, and there are serious privacy concerns about uh, uh, you know, information that, you know, for example, like if you go with a vaccine passport to a restaurant, you're going to have to show your ID, other ID as well, you know, to verify that the passport is applicable to you. You know, and so we're in a slippery slope kind of situation, like where you pointed out where, you know, the police, who's going to be... Uh, uh, asking for these uh, vaccine passports for police, uh, checking up on people. Can keep it in mind as well that the vaccines are experimental. You know, like, the, the, you know, there is uh, uh, a lot to be learned yet about them. And uh, I'm concerned about the divisiveness of this as well, right? You know, that the, the, you know we don't have mechanisms for people to actually thrash these things out and make decisions uh, Rather, we get a situation, we have a representative system where we just sort of hand over decision-making power to governments, and then behind closed doors, they come back with a policy that they impose on us. And, uh, you know, so uh, I, I, I see, I really question whether a vaccine passport was necessary. I, at the same time, I, I can see where, you know, there are things like voluntary 
uh, situations like you were describing in the U.S. there. And also, like, if we look at uh, health care, you know, it may be necessary in the health field, you know, for, you know, people in care homes and all this uh, to uh, necessarily have um, vaccines as a condition of employment. You know, so I, I can see, you know, that there's, a, you know, a necessity uh, maybe at that level there. But for this overall level where the government, the provincial and federal governments are getting involved in putting together a vaccine passport, I think that that's, uh, we're going into overkill there. Okay, thanks, Peter. Actually, we should uh, take a break. We'll come back to after nine after this. Health Canada wants you to share on your social media channel your reason for getting vaccinated. Sharing your vaccination story can increase vaccine confidence among people in Canada. As more people get vaccinated, our communities become safer and we can all get back to the people, places and things we miss. Follow, tag and retweet Health Canada using the hashtag MyWhy to share your vaccination story at Healthy Canadians on Instagram, Healthy Canadians on Facebook and at GovCanHealth on Twitter. The University of Northern BC is conducting a research survey on the use of technology to support social connection during COVID-19. The survey is to learn how people are using technology to share information and maintain social connections during the pandemic. Those over the age of 18 are invited to share their experiences and enter a draw to win one of five $50 Amazon gift cards. To take the survey or for more information, click on the UNBC survey link on the public service announcement page at cfisfm.com. Prince George City Council is continuing to pursue options to address the encampments in Prince George in ways that protect the health and safety of everyone. To this end, the city is seeking a court injunction to remove the encampments, which are known to be dangerous and unhealthy. This process is expected to take a few months. In the meantime, Council continues to work with partners, including the province of B.C., Northern Health, B.C. Housing, and Indigenous organizations to address the issue. Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny today, winds in the south at 20 this afternoon, a high of 31 with a high UV index. Clear tonight, south winds becoming light this evening at a low of 14. For Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud, winds from the southwest at 20 in the afternoon, a high of 26 with a high UV index. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. So I'd like to keep talking about this uh, idea of passports, mandates, passes, etc. Um, you know, the first question I asked was, would a, would a mandatory government pass be a way for... Uh, to, to incentivize people to get vaccinated. But what about on the other side? What about the private realm? So business owners, like, like in, uh, in New York, for instance, um, you know, what if a business owner were to say, oh, I require proof of vaccination for you to come into my restaurant or bar? Is that, is that a little more palatable to this group? Is that something that actually might, uh, we think might bring people around to increase the vaccination rate? Or is that going to present, uh, then kind of divide society even more than it already is? I'll go with art first. Well, I think that, um, anybody who has a private business has the right to, uh, require certain things, uh, of their customers or their staff. So uh, they could do it. I think they might be resistant to doing that because uh, it'll cost them uh, some business. And uh, I know that there are some uh, business owners, restaurant owners and the like in the United States that uh, have uh, declared that they will absolutely not require proof of vaccination even if uh, the government uh, requires them to do it. They'll, they'll refuse. So uh, I, I 
I, I, I recall when uh, a year ago when uh, some stores had mask mandates, you know, as is their right as a private business, and others did not. People just went to the store that didn't. So I think that'll be the situation. Uh, the, the business that uh, has no requirement for vaccination proof uh, will get the extra business. Okay, that's an interesting flip of it. Herb, what do you think about uh, the, the, do businesses have the right to refuse your uh, business if you aren't double vaccinated? Sure they do. Yeah, there's no question. They, they have that choice. Unfortunately, what will happen, though, is that um, in, in the states, in red states, uh, businesses that um, don't require it will get more business. In blue states, uh, they, uh, they, if they require it, they will get more business. So it doesn't really solve the problem. Of uh, perception, I think the only the only thing that will will do that is just the rising number of cases and the rising number of deaths. I mean, it's uh, right now. I think Florida is something like ten to twelve times the infection rate and the death rate of uh, of Canada. So um, and it's and it's supposed to get worse. So and and that's what's going to happen here if people don't uh, don't smarten up. I mean, there's uh, still parts in Northern Health, uh, Peace River North, Peace River South. They're looking at less than 50% of vaccination rates, uh, 43% in, in both the Peace River North and South. So, um, yeah, people just haven't uh, cottoned on yet that it's a good idea. Uh, Peter, do you think that there are things that we can do here? For instance, if you know private businesses say that you, you're not allowed in, um, m- might that actually change people's behavior? Or do you think that they're, they're going to get vaccinated? They've already done it. They're well, no it changing could, people. That could happen. Uh, and I'm I'm not against that, like in terms of uh, you know private businesses uh, requiring a vaccinees passport. I just I don't like it at the government uh, at the government level, right? I think um, you know there's uh, there's a whole number of things that uh, you know can be uh, can be done. Like, and what we have to keep in mind is that eventually this uh, infection, this epidemic, is going to pass. And uh, we have to be very careful when things like this happen and uh, everyone gets extremely concerned that we don't put in place mechanisms that uh, are unnecessary and actually uh, violate freedom and and so on. So uh, I I think that's very important with this, that we don't get caught up in the the fever of the moment, right, and bring in measures that are not necessary. And I think think a number, I think... uh, uh, particular companies and restaurants and all that would, uh, over time, be cognizant of that, right? You know, be careful about uh, imposing things for, for an epidemic that eventually is going to leave. So, Eric, you got the last word on this. you think that there is, uh, do you think that, one, actually businesses requiring people to have vaccination might increase vaccination rates, and two, you think it's actually a good business idea? No, I don't think it's good for business at all, and I think they'll find a way around it, one of which might be segregation, you know, which we don't really need. But they might say, if you're vaccinated, just you come over this side of the restaurant, and if you're not, you sit over there. Not a good idea, but I could see it happening. And if the government is, is are they going to have that type of a system on uh, public transport? Like, if you're not vaccinated, you can't take a bus? I mean, uh, where do you draw the line on this? So let's assume that you can take a bus, and 30 people roll into town, and half of them are on the bus, and half are vaccinated, and half aren't. But they get to the restaurants, and only half can go in to eat. You see, it doesn't make any sense on any level. It's just it's just something that's thrown out there, and it's trying to swim, and I think it's going to drown. And as far as the vaccine being, uh, 
utopia or something. Vaccine didn't stop anybody from getting the uh, the uh, COVID. Apparently, what it does is stops you from dying from it. So there's a difference. And just a sideline, you know, how much credit is being given to people wearing masks? People who stayed at home for over a year and a half and hardly ever left the house. People that didn't go out in crowds, didn't go on vacations, and and basically followed the rules. Don't they get some credit for for stopping this thing or at least slowing it down? Does the vaccine get all the credit? Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, there is there is one thing: vaccination. Like ninety five percent of cases of exposure uh, do not get COVID, right? So you've got to, you know nineteen times out of twenty, vaccination is going to help you remain uh, well. And there's a good point about the, you know, we did all these public health measures in the beginning there. You know, real hardcore lockdowns. But I think, you know, is it is it not the case that a vaccine passport might be the thing that allows us to then freedom freely move? I think that was what Herb might have been getting at. Um, does anyone else have like other things to add here? Because I think Herb had had some uh, points about, you know, 90 percent of the hospitalized people have not been vaccinated. Um, you know, does does, for instance, we require. Uh, children to have a certain set of vaccines when they go into school. Uh, would we not, should we not require now that, you know, as, as a citizen, it's kind of your obligation to, to have some vaccine? I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Or, or are we only concerned with individual rights? In which case, you know, we might as well drive in, on whichever side of the road we want to. Go ahead. We'll just open it up. Oh, folks, uh, we still look at the statistics, uh, you can, uh, Iceland has been cited a number of times for being uh, so uh, successful and uh, doing so well at uh, controlling and killing the virus using science. Most of them are vaccinated, and but all of a sudden now uh, their new cases are skyrocketing higher than they've ever been before. And uh, so the vaccine doesn't seem to be all that effective after all. Uh, the health minister there even say, stated that uh, perhaps the only way to get herd immunity is to let the virus run through the population, for which he got a lot of flack. You know, we might want to just take a moment to remember where this thing came from now. The information I have, it started in some laboratory in Wuhan province. Now, I found out much later that the people that were working in that laboratory were financed by the U.S. government, and so I think we could logically follow that if it's a responsibility there, then it's probably attributable to the people that were working on it, and they also allowed it to get loose. But the big question is, why were they working on it in the first place? I mean, they're working on germ warfare. Is this what we're working on now? Well, I'll just yeah. clarify here, Peter, because we don't want to necessarily spread rumors on the radio. That In that story, if you you know, it's actually... Uh, they, the, that story, the origins of COVID may actually be from the 1918 Spanish flu that was discovered in frozen, uh, frozen carcasses in Alaska or something. The U.S. government brought it to, you know, and, and that actually exists in a number of labs and it got out, right? It's not, it wasn't being weaponized. That's the story that I heard, so. Yeah, no, well, it could be, but I mean, the thing is, we know that governments work on these types of things all the time. But the thing is that, that don't the government take some responsibility for what's going on here? Like, I hardly ever hear any word about why it happened, where it happened, and who's responsible for it. I just hear what they expect me to do to stop it. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm getting the signal. We've got to take a break. 
The public is advised of an active landslide adjacent to Swift Creek near Valemount. The village of Valemount and Regional District of Fraser Fort George have established a joint emergency operations center and are advising everyone to avoid the area. An evacuation alert is in effect for all properties on the northeast side of Main Street in Valemount, beginning at William Road and extending beyond the Swift Creek Bridge to the end of Main Street. Residents in the area are encouraged to sign up for emergency alert notifications for further updates. Ron Brent Park is now open. The park is located between the Connaught Youth Center and River Bend Seniors Manor. Accessible paved trails with lighting, horseshoe pits, seniors' fitness equipment, and a large garden make it an attractive local park for seniors. Landscaping includes an irrigated lawn, trees, and site furnishings, and easy access is available from paved parking at the Connaught Youth Center. It's the latest addition to the city's spectacular park system. Ron Brent Park is now open behind the Connaught Youth Center. The Regional District of Fraser Fort George has issued an evacuation alert for the Shesta Lake and Punshaw area. The alert has been issued as a result of wildfires in the area. Residents are asked to prepare for a possible evacuation order. Information on emergency preparedness is available on the Regional District website at rdffg.bc.ca or by calling 1-800-667-1959. For more information on the wildland fires in the area, visit the BC Wildfire Management Branch at bcwildfire.ca. It's not your typical BCNE, but the exhibition grounds will be abuzz with activity August 19th to the 22nd. 4-H will be on hand with an awesome 4-H Achievement Day and the Midway will be up and running all four days. Enjoy rides, get food from concessions, and visit adorable animals. The annual 4-H auction will also take place on August 21st. Pre-register to get in on the bidding. That's 4-H displays and Midway rides, August 19th to the 22nd at the Exhibition Grounds. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, despite, you know, wanting to continue talking about vaccine passports for the rest of the show, I think we should just throw, uh, you know, a little bit of time to the second topic that uh, I sent you guys uh, about uh, the issue that we're having with, you know, being caught in the middle of a superpower uh, power struggle between China and the United States. Um, As we know, you know, uh, Michael Spaver was just sentenced to 11 years in jail. Uh, Robert Schellenberg, I, I think you might have heard of him, he was already convicted of uh, drug trafficking. They opened his case back up, and they've now sentenced him to death. Um, all of this because Meng uh, Wanzhou ends up being, you know, uh, potentially extradited to the United States. You know, there has been numerous people saying that Canada should have denied the request of the United States, which was under the Trump administration. Other people are saying, well, that's crazy to... Um, to ignore the rule of law and our biggest trading partner. Uh, let's start with Herb. What do you think that Canada could possibly do in this situation? Uh, it's much like our situation with the states. We've got to be very careful. I mean, they're a huge uh, trading partner. There's a huge balance in the um, power relationship between our countries, both with the U.S. and with China. So, um, yeah, he tried carefully. Uh, Trudeau Sr. once said it was like sleeping in bed with an elephant. Uh, you're concerned if it moves at night, um, uh, and there's not much you can do about it. So, I, I don't know. One, one thing uh, I've, I've been sort of thinking that uh, uh, China does, does uh, require uh, large imports of coal 
And that is something both Canada and Australia um, send to uh, China in large quantities. And perhaps some sort of coal cartel might be the answer. But um, uh, you know, in a, in a uh, trade war, this is something that, um, that uh, we could fall back on. But besides that, I mean, that's not something you want to use every day. Um, it's, um, yeah, there's, there's reality of the world is we're a small country. So, Peter, what do you think? Is there is, is there actually a reason for us to be wringing our hands and, 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 you know, doing things like creating a coal cartel just because a couple of Canadian citizens are, are being uh, kind of held hostage by a foreign country? Uh, well, yeah, no, I, I think what happened here was that the, the federal government, you know, walked into a mud puddle, which it should have stepped aside or walked around. You know, because I agree with you, like, this is a, a question of a big struggle between the two most powerful economic powers in the world. And it's over which, which of the giant telecommunications co- corporations are going to dominate in the world. And, um, the, the three, the, the, the four people who are caught up here, including Meng Wanzhou and Michael Spavor and et cetera, uh, they're just individuals caught up in the gears of this, uh, of this big fight. In my reading of the situation, the uh, U.S. case is, is very weak in terms of uh, uh, implicating Meng in uh, wrongdoing regarding uh, Iran. Like, uh, you have a situation there where the, the U.S. is all over the map in terms of these sanctions against uh, Iran. And um, the uh, prohibitions that the U.S. has brought in, the sanctions have brought in, does not apply to Canadian law. And therefore, like, why should we be uh, extraditing Meng to uh, the U.S. when uh, it's not even an offense in Canada what uh, uh, has taken place there? So uh, I think, uh, you know, this is a, this is a question of, uh, and, and within the liberal, former Liberal Party people like Jean Chrétien and others and all this, they basically tried to tell the, the federal government, walk around this mud puddle, don't get in the middle of it. But now, of course, there's a major split in Canada-China relations, and uh, uh, you, you have a, a, a real debacle to be sorted out. Okay, Eric, do you think that there's actually a way for us to walk around this mud puddle? I mean, sure. Yeah, all we got to do is uh, get China to hire Dog the Bounty Hunter to come in and take her and take her back to China. It's all over. <laughs> <laughs> That would make for good TV, uh, <laughs> uh, but seriously, I mean, if There's we some serious problems. We we had. I mean, I read a story many many years ago about. I think it was New Zealand, Australia, or something. In a war, Second World War had been over, and these people in the jungle didn't know it, and, they, and the Australian soldiers shot some people, and so whoever the government was dealing with at the time, the British government or whatever, wouldn't sign this. Uh, declaration or whatever, unless these people were charged with murder. And so they allowed them to go ahead and charge him with murder, and then they hung him. But these guys legitimately didn't know the war was over and was just doing what they were supposed to be doing. So governments can trample on individual rights if it's in what they consider to be the greater good or whatever. And I don't, I don't believe it for a moment. I don't think that these people should be pawns in the big game. And governments, uh, United States, Canada, or whatever, shouldn't be doing that. And we should have known better when this situation was coming down that what could happen if it went sideways. And it looks like we were probably hunting, fishing, or golfing or something and didn't, didn't catch on. 
Art, do you think that uh, we could have ignored the United States' request for extradition uh, in order to save our own, in order to remove ourselves from the middle of this? It's possible if uh, we'd known in advance. I think we did know in advance uh, the Americans advised us that she was coming into Canada and that we should grab her. Um, if there was some way we could have, uh, you know, radioed the plane and told them to divert to Mexico, or I don't know what. There, there may have been a way, but I, I, it's doubtful. Canada is in a bind here between uh, what China wants and what the United States wants. And uh, how can we get out of it? Well, one thing we know for sure is that uh, whatever happens to Ming Wanzhou, uh, it'll be much worse to what happens to Canadians. Uh, they've got three, we have one. Their uh, punishment will be much harsher than anything we do if we extradite her to the United States. And it'll be much harsher than what the United States does. So uh, we're in a losing situation here. Uh, but the only way out is to release her back to China, which would tick off the United States. But they're not going to do as much to us as the Chinese will. And once we do that, I think the Chinese will let everything go back to normal between them and Canada. Okay. Well, thanks for that. I guess uh, the final word is we do negotiate with hostage takers. Is that right? Uh, thanks, gentlemen, for for your time here. And uh, happy Friday. Have a great weekend. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.com.